This episode of Access Utah was first broadcast in March 2019. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Chef Nephi Craig. He's founder of the Native American Culinary Association. Uh, Nephi Craig has 20 years of culinary experience, having worked around the world and provides uh, trainings, workshops, and lectures on Native American cuisine for health at schools, restaurants, universities, treatment centers, behavioral health agencies, and tribal uh, entities. Nephi Craig uh, was until recently executive chef of Sunrise Park Resort Hotel um, with the White Mountain Apache Tribe in uh, Arizona. Um, he is currently Nutritional Recovery Program Coordinator and Executive Chef at the Rainbow Treatment Center and Cafe Gojo on the White Mountain Apache uh, Tribe lands in uh, Arizona. And uh, Nephi Craig, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me here. I'm very excited. So uh, interesting background, a lot to talk about. Um, Native American culture, cuisine, um, history, and even we'll get to talking about how that history connects up to nutrition today. Uh, I guess for all of us, but uh, maybe concentrating on Native American peoples. Uh, so you grew up with the White Mountain Apache uh, nation there. Yeah. Uh, so your mother is Apache, your father Navajo. Yes. But it's uh, matrilineal, so you, yeah. you your, your father was, as you say in a talk, humble enough to raise you as an Apache, right? Yeah. He, um, uh, I was born and raised on the White Mountain Apache tribe, and... Um, uh, since we were matrilineal societies, I identify as um, White Mountain Apache, but I never forget that I'm I'm Diné, I'm Navajo on my dad's side from Crown Point, New Mexico, in the Eastern Navajo Nation in New Mexico. Um, my parents were, uh, like I was saying, my father was cool enough to let us um, I'd self-identify in that way and never really force um, too much on us in that mm-hmm. in that culturally in that way. So I was yeah. really really uh, grateful for that. Uh, so your your father sounds like a very interesting man, Vincent. Yeah, is his name right? Uh huh. Um, and uh, so he 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 was a singer. I guess he was a performer. Yeah, he was uh, Vincent. My dad was uh, the late Vincent Craig. He was a singer and songwriter, um, very well known around uh, Indian country and especially on the Navajo Nation uh, for his uh, his humorous songs. One being Rita, or he created the first uh, Navajo superhero called Mutton Man. Um, Mutton Man. Yeah, Mutton Man. He could, uh, was faster than the, what does it say, he could leap shiprock in a single bound, faster than the BIA, and, you know, all these really kind of cool um, things. <clears throat> and um, he uh, he was a cartoonist and a singer and songwriter. Um, he wrote, uh, um, created numerous albums, and later on in life I would uh, help him create two of them with uh, my keyboard skills. Mm. So it was he was a very uh, influential character in my life. Um, he was a United States Marine Corps sergeant. Uh, he met my mom in in Hawaii, and then um, they ultimately came back and started their family. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's unusual. What were they doing out in Hawaii? Um, my father was stationed in the Marine Corps, and my mother was attending BYU. Oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah. they met. They met, met out in there. Hawaii. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Pretty neat. Uh, and then your grandfather sounds like a very interesting. Yeah, fellow. Um, Tell me about him. My my grandfather Bob Etsidi Craig. Um, so, uh, Et City is our, uh, our, our original name in Navajo, uh, last name, <clears throat> but for purposes of going to war to enlist in the United States Marine Corps, um, changed his name to Craig and, uh, Bob Et City Craig would eventually, um, enlist in, in, uh, World War II and become a Navajo code talker. Mm-hmm. He would serve on Guam, Guadalcanal and was wounded on Iwo Jima and, uh, he returned home and uh, started his own family as well. Mm, yeah, interesting. Uh, so that's that's great heritage, uh, obviously. Uh, so, uh, how does a young man on the you know Apache White Mountain lands end up uh, as a French chef? That's that's what happened to you, right? Yeah, it, I I kind of don't. I feel like that was the only option in terms of going to culinary school uh, in 1997, 98. It was a typical culinary school education, and somewhat today was primarily French-based or classically based. So that was the language I began to adopt. And I feel like um, growing up in uh, kind of a, a family that took pride in the military, I was uh, gravitated towards structure and discipline and organization. 
so the kitchens are just naturally hierarchical, hmm. and um, they're they're very kind of organ- high high caliber kitchens are very very disciplined and structured. So I didn't know what I was getting into, but I ended up being able to thrive in the in in the controlled crisis of a kitchen. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, was it uh, high stress? Is it? Yeah, it's um, a lot of a lot of food industry professionals will um, you'll hear the common term like. Uh, controlled chaos or mm-hmm. organized chaos, you know, um, but it is high high stress, fast paced, um, uh, many many variables at play at once. Uh, so I think it takes a certain kind of mindset to to really kind of go for it. You mm-hmm. know? And you apparently had that mindset, and uh, I guess enjoying your career, and, and you you've been many places around the world. Yeah, I um, see the way I started out with a with a typical culinary school education. Um, I looked for the the best restaurants in my area by advice of my mentors in school, and the best place that was in in Phoenix at the time was uh, Mary Elaine's at the Phoenician, and that was a very classical um, French kitchen. It was one of the twelve at the time. I think the only twelve five star five diamond resorts in on the West Coast. And if Michelin was, if Michelin, the Michelin guide system was in the country back then, it probably would have earned a couple of Michelin stars maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what I sought out, and I was lucky enough to get into that uh, kitchen when I was 23 years old. And it was like, I always say it was like climbing the mountain to the Shaolin Temple to learn the secrets of Kung Fu mm-hmm. with the masters, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I was able to get there, and... Um, ter- many turning points happened in my career with Native Foods, but when I got to Mary Lane's of the Phoenician, they had um, uh, uh, classical dishes being reinterpreted with like buffalo from the Great Plains, mm-hmm. from uh, tribally owned operations there, and they had like uh, salmon from the Quinault River or the Quinault Tribe area. You know, so these are really powerful ancestral foods that had deep cultural significance mm-hmm. to peoples of North America were being used at a high level, mm-hmm. and that brought a sense of validation for me as a Native person. It brought a sense of um, possibility and potential, mm-hmm. um, but still I had to keep my head down and just keep really training and grinding mm-hmm. uh, to be able to um, pick up those skills to build myself up again. So it was it was awesome. It was an amazing time there. Yeah. You say build yourself up mm-hmm. uh, again. Here. I had come from working five years at the country club at DC Ranch in North Scottsdale and um, a lot of trial and error there. My mentor was uh, Chef Chris Olson and... Um, uh, so I had to like relearn, unlearn and relearn everything that I thought I knew. Mm-hmm. It was a complete different mindset mm-hmm. and structure, uh, from the country club setting, which was excellent and amazing in its own. And then Mary Elaine's was a whole different caliber, mm-hmm. um, in terms of equipment, professionalism, expectations, all those things, yeah. standards. Um, it was, it was amazing. So relearn, unlearn, uh, could be, uh, could be metaphors for what you then went to do. I don't know if you thought about that at a certain point. Yes, it you, was. You, you, you made a transition. You wanted to emphasize Native American cuisine. Yeah, and and I think it had always been with me. Mm-hmm. Um, just growing up in White River and uh, uh, going to high school in Window Rock, Arizona, and Dineta, it, it um, I always wanted to do something cool with Native foods because I had grown up seeing Native foods, eating it occasionally, and kind of having um, um, exposure to those those foodways, and uh, I I really enjoyed. The process, and I, I um, so when I got to culinary school, I would ask uh, non-native chefs like, "Hey, chef, is there such a thing as Native American cuisine?" And my the responses I would get would be kind of a dismissive response, like, "Well, I know you make fry bread, I mm-hmm. know you boil stuff, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of real simplistic kind of dismissive responses." And to me, that didn't sit well with me, but I didn't respond in a negative way. I just kind of said, "Okay, that's 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 it's not cool to talk about this," you know. So that, that uh, seed observation from a young person eventually turned into Native American uh, Culinary Association because early on I wanted to find a Native chef to work for so I could be trained by a Native chef um, to learn what they knew. It was kind of the, the mystique that it had for me. And, um, but it, it was, there was, they were a rarity in mm-hmm. 1998 and from where I was standing. And uh, I always joke around and say that um, I would enter kitchens and people would say, uh, I know a chef who knows a chef, or I know this guy who knows a guy who who, who knows one a native chef somewhere, you know? Mm-hmm. I say it was like a Bigfoot sighting, you know? Mm-hmm. Like right. somebody knew somebody who knew somebody who saw <laughs> yeah. one somewhere, right. you know? Yeah. Um, but 
ultimately a lot of uh I wanted to learn from someone and I figured in like as early as 1999 and 2000 I said I'm I'm going to start a concept and I'm going to do Native American Color Association because uh, I'm going to I'm I'm committed to this and I'm going to do this as a pathway for the rest of my life and eventually I'll climb the ranks and be a chef and eventually I'll have the the ability to train other natives so 20 years later, I'm, I'm right here now. So mm, yeah, it's good. pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, achieve your goal. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's wonderful. Um, so Native American cuisine. Uh, I was reading a Newsweek article in which you, you appear, uh, an interview, and the, uh, their line was, um, if you ask a man on the street what Native American cuisine is, you might get some mumbling about Thanksgiving. And then uh, before we went on the air, you, you added, and they might add fry bread, you know, or, or something something like that but not a not a whole lot of understanding in the, in the general conception yeah about what native american cuisine is mm-hmm. certainly and it, it, the there's another uh piece out there where um i'm quoted as saying um the biggest misconception about native american cuisine is that it does not exist and i think um uh, the term cuisine implies fine dining. It implies a certain opulence and luxury. Uh, but in reality, the word cuisine simply just means uh, food that represents a people. Mm. And so um, when, uh, when we examine and look at the foodways and agricultural history and scientific history of indigenous foods, we really begin to go on this journey of discovery and this journey of justice and injustice along the way. Uh, very much similar to um, salt wars and spice wars in Europe. Um, very amazing um, uh, time in the Americas for the past 500 years as it relates to food history. So um, uh, a lot of there's a, it, there's a lot of complex reasons why we don't see many Native American restaurants mm-hmm. or even Native American chefs. Um, there, it's it's a pretty deep issue. It's really neat. Yeah. Um, Let's take a break, then I want to jump into this. You, uh, yeah. In a presentation, you have said, uh, why are there no Native American cuisine restaurants? Um, well, we talk about the Gold Rush and Manifest Destiny and uh, Louisiana Purchase. And there's, a, <clears throat> there's another side to, to those, those historical uh, events. Let's, let's talk about that. And uh, you talk about a dignified resurgence of ancestral knowledge, which let's talk about that as well. Uh, More following this break. Welcome to Science by the Slice. Today's electronics demand safer, more compact, and less expensive batteries. USU chemist Leo Liu and students are studying magnesium batteries, which offer these advantages and may someday replace lithium-ion batteries. A challenge is unreliable performance, which Liu says is caused by impurities in the battery's electrolyte. He and his team discovered adding magnesium powder remedies this obstacle and yields improved performance. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. Have you checked out the UPR app? You can go online to your favorite app store and, with applications for Apple and Android, you can listen to UPR wherever you go, worldwide. Find us at upr.org. episode of Access Utah was first broadcast in March 2019. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. My guest is Nephi Craig. He is a chef. He is founder of the Native American Culinary Association. 
Um, Nephi Craig has 20 years of culinary experience, having worked around the world uh, and provides trainings, workshops, and lectures on Native American cuisine for health at schools, restaurants, university treatment centers, behavioral health agencies, tribal entities. Uh, so uh, Nephi Craig is uh, White Mountain Apache and uh, Navajo. He's an executive uh, chef. And uh, currently, he is um, Nutritional Recovery Program Coordinator and Executive chef, uh, chef at the Rainbow Treatment Center in Cafe Gojo on the White Mountain Apache Tribe in Arizona. We'll talk about that as we, we go along. Interesting intersection there of uh, people in recovery and food and yes. culture, right? Yes. So, but first, I want to get into this history to which we made reference before the break. Um, so uh, you you pose, uh, so I watched a lecture, and people can find this, uh, just Google this. This is, uh, I think, last year. Mm-hmm. You gave a, a TED Talk-type presentation yeah. uh, to the uh, Cowboy Gathering. Yeah. It was a Cowboy Ca- Gathering. Cowboy Nelco. Poetry Gathering. Yeah. Nelco. Yeah. And... Um, it, Maybe people are conditioned to treat you warmly because your father was there a lot, right? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I was invited to present at the Elko in Elko at the Cowboy Poetry Gathering, and I was like, "What? How? How did this happen?" You know? And I was like, "My dad used to perform there, and uh, my dad was a singer and songwriter." So, as I mentioned, and um, somehow they, uh, in their planning activities, they were looking to do uh, people doing common people doing extraordinary, extraordinary work. And some of they came across my stuff and uh, invited me to speak. So I got to uh, return about 25 years later to Elko. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a nice continuation, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. yeah. So in that presentation, you pose a question, why are there no Native American cuisine restaurants? And then you go on to, to cite some historical events, mm-hmm. Gold Rush, um, Manifest Destiny, uh, Louisiana Purchase. So how does that relate to why there are no Native American mm-hmm. cuisine restaurants? Yeah, as as I address these issues and go on this uh, uh, journey of understanding and articulation, I always uh, go at it with a sense of responsibility and self-determination, um, not blaming uh, certain issues or parties. Um, but in, in all reality, one of the major reasons that we don't do not have many uh, Native American restaurants or Native chefs is is a result. It can be rooted in historical trauma or historical traumas. Um, across Native America, and in that particular presentation, we talked uh, we talked about um, great American benchmarks: um, Louisiana Purchase, Lewis and Clark Expedition, and the California Gold Rush, which were symbols of progress in the American psyche. Uh, but from an indigenous perspective, they were the advances and um, the examples of the ethnogenocide of people, land, and waters. Um, there were terms used like terra nullius and manifest destiny to justify the taking of an entire landscape. And in that process, the uh, violent displacement and interruption of foodways and ceremony and culture, um, indigenous foodways deeply are connected to uh, um, identity, time, and place. So when you look at westward expansion and themes of, uh, of colonial thought being implanted, and indigenous people having no choice but to um, fight back or be uh, overrun in the process, it's a very traumatic experience, uh, widespread from Florida to Washington State, from uh, California to New York. Uh, all these examples they, of American history have a, a profound impact on the other side from the indigenous perspective. And it's a tough topic to begin to talk about, but... I think our generation is ready for it now. It's safer to address these issues than it ever has been, I believe. And so I feel very fortunate to be able to uh, intertwine those themes into food and cooking, uh, indigenous resurgence and health, um, because I I do my best to approach it with a sense of accountability and responsibility. And again, not be blaming certain issues, but highlighting the biocycle social effects of these traumas, you know, complex grief. It's it's really interesting to me. It's cool. We'll we'll pick up that thread, the complex grief, and need to how yeah. that relates to recovery. But um, just parenthetically, before mm-hmm. going out, I was reading that you you said growing up, you know, uh, White Mountain, and and then went to uh, high school in Window Rock. You said uh, you were getting kind of the standard 
two-page history or social studies, you know, that mm-hmm. I, I guess a lot of us got, right? Yeah, it, and <clears throat> I think uh, most most of uh, America does have that two, three-page overview of Native American uh, history, which uh, um, which which a lot of scholars and some people refer to as the master narrative mm-hmm. um, because it, it's not the, the accurate history. And um, so... What, what I've learned along the way is that by following the food and the, um, the food history, we really retell a, a clear um, a story of, of Native peoples and their uh, ancestral intelligence and complexity and sophistication. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's a really cool way to unravel this, this knot in our hearts, I, I believe. Hmm. By the way, are, are your kids getting a, a different you know these things being taught differently um <clears throat> i i um my kids i uh kind of following what my the way my dad uh approached it is not to really force anything mm-hmm. but i always will point out um examples of injustices or point out microaggressions as they happen uh point out situations that used to be acceptable or that are unacceptable um, and try to dispel notions, not in a very aggressive, again, not in a blaming way, mm-hmm. but in a way that hopefully allows them to make decisions that will stay with them uh, at, when they in, enter adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, but this is at home, right? Yeah, you're, this is, you're doing this, this at home. And I wonder about the curriculum. I guess that would be controlled by the state. I don't know. Or, or um, For our program? That, yeah. Um, uh, well, no, I mean for at, at school, you know, elementary oh, at school, schools right? or, or high school. I, I suppose you know? it's changing. I don't mm-hmm. know exactly what the curriculum's uh, – um, uh, encompass in terms of native history. I know there's more native programs. Uh, there, there's more. Uh, we're more connected ever, than ever before through social media. Mm-hmm. So you can follow certain hashtags, or young people can follow certain hashtags, and be connected to social movements and justice movements as well. Mm-hmm. So there's more options um, for them. But I also do know that um, indigeneity and themes of decolonization. Uh, um, they they threaten certain structures, so mm. it, it's a it, it's kind of up. It is controlled by a certain by the states, mm. and um, but we'll see how it continues to move forward. I think, mm. and I think kids are interested more and willing to talk about it. Yeah. Um. So this is interesting intersection of uh, culture and history and food. Mm-hmm. Um. And so you talk about recovering this ancestral knowledge regarding regarding food. How do you how do you go about doing that? Um, I heard a farmer tell me once, uh, to, to save a seed, you plant it. So it's like to recover a language, we speak it. Uh, to recover a culture, we participate, you know. Um, we are, we embody indigeneity, so when we, when we act on it and give it life, that's how we reclaim it. Um, uh, a lot of times there's these very romantic notions about um, that include themes of really uh, intense saviorism, that one individual is going to save a community or a family or X, Y, and Z, but in reality, one individual just saves one individual. And in the recovery process, that's how it goes. And, and I believe that um, that's how it's going to continue to manifest itself. So um, that's why promoting uh, these certain themes and making those connections with history, food, and nutrition are very important because... Hopefully, we we re- retell that story with uh, a code of ethics and principles, and allow people to make decisions for themselves. Um, hopefully, they look in the mirror. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you talk about uh, it could be something as simple as harvesting acorns. Yes, yes, ancestral knowledge is powerful, and um, when we're when we're uh, in a academic mindset or professional mindset. Uh, or even just general mindset of being a civilian in, in the country, uh, I think we we're, we look for complex validation by Western standards, right? Um, we look for complex uh, validations in practice or food and nutrition. Um, but in reality, ancestral knowledge is, is the act of um, just greeting someone by saying dagote in Apache, which means hello, um, gathering acorns or pinions, um, laughing at a joke and at an indigenous joke or um, how you interact with grandma versus how you interact with your brother. There's, there's certain um, very basic, simple protocols that are indigenous in heart and spirit. And that in itself are, is the ancestral knowledge. Um, and we kind of, I, I think, at least for me, I know that in the past, I was one of those people that looked for uh, really complex validation of our foodways. 
but as I've gotten older and um, began my own family and my own journey as a chef, I realize that simplicity is the most powerful thing and are um, usually the most simple techniques or approaches are also the, the most complex. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the irony yeah. of, yeah. of it all. It's cool. Uh, that has application to a lot of things in life, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. Seek that simplicity, uh-huh. you know, which is hard to do, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult. It's hard to do. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking with Nephi Craig. Um, he is uh, a Native American chef. He is a founder of the Native American Culinary Association. Um, I want to uh, have you talk about the three sisters. What mm-hmm. are the three sisters? The the three sisters are a combination of three very important cultivars that were domesticated by indigenous peoples. It began in Mesoamerica. Um, then they contain corn, beans, and squash. And they're grown together in a farming technique known today as companion planting. Um, you could take it a step further and add a couple more uh, companion plants, and it's a milpa planting. Um, but the three sisters, uh, the corn provides a natural beanstalk for beans. Uh, squash uh, shades the soil and prevents erosion, retains moisture, and uh, beans release nitrogen into the soil, which the corn needs to grow. And so not only do they uh, support each other uh, and uh, agriculturally, they also complement each other when you eat them because corn is missing a couple amino acids to form a protein and the beans and the squash supply them. So when you consume all the way from seed to human consumption, they're working together for us and uh, they form a complete protein. And and in my opinion, that's that's a a powerful example of ancestral intelligence and uh, agricultural sciences and um, the notion that um, uh, indigenous diets, pre-colonial and pre-reservation diets were mostly Mm plant-based. So we had an intelligent way to source out our our proteins without animal proteins or source out our potassium, like with choya buds, for example, without drinking dairy. Um, So, and I use it as as an entryway into native cuisine um, because for a long time the entryway was fry bread to native cooking. Um, A lot of uh, flour-based, lard-based, beef-based, pork-based dishes, um, which which in fact are not indigenous. And so I use the three sisters. It it kind of originates more, excuse me, on the the Great Lakes Midwest Eastern stories. Um, And the reason that I use it, when I was growing up on the Apache Navajo Reservation, I never heard it referred to as called the three sisters, but I always saw corn, beans, and squash Mm. in our stoops, our stews, at our celebrations. Maybe they were all three together. Maybe they were separate, but they were always visible characters or cultivars. So I like to teach it because, as you said, we taught it to grade school kids and we could teach it to graduate students. We could teach it to nutritionists and we could teach it to food scientists. And it promotes a very simple message of symbiotic relationships. Uh, We can teach kids to work together and talk about nutrition and eating colorful foods, you know, and we can break down the science and history of it all, too. So I feel like it's a very dynamic um, teaching companion. That, that I use as a tool. Mm-hmm. So that's why I, li- I like to promote it and use it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is interesting. You mentioned fry bread. You, you're going back to, you know, deep origins with the three sisters. Mm-hmm. Fry bread's much more recent, right? And, that, and that's that's part of this, part of this, this colonial history. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, right? it is. It fry is. Bread. And, and it's, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a big um, piece of our public health epidemic right now too. Mm-hmm. Uh, flour-based foods and, uh, lard-based foods, um, anything that consists of beef, chicken, pork, uh, flour, lard, and sugar, those are all um, uh, the recipe uh, for a widespread public health epidemic mm-hmm. of di- diabetes, obesity, heart disease. Yeah. Lard and, and flour and, yeah. and all that came in when um, and when the nations were placed on reservations. Yeah, right? they're, they're, those are all Eurasian ingredients. And so they, they are born out of uh, military captivity. Um, widespread, regardless of what region you came from, you most likely got a same list of commodity foods or military food rations. Uh, you could be this, uh, on the Seminole Nation or in the, the forests of the Northwest or in the Great Plains or in the Southwest, but you you pretty much got the same type of military food rations. Mm-hmm. And so that's why you see fry bread across Native America in the United States. Mm-hmm. 
uh, even up into Canada is referred to as Bannock, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's a food born out of oppression, um, but without the ingenuity of our grandmothers and daughters and aunties, um, they, we would not have been able to sustain ourselves. So it's, mm. it's, it's a love hate relationship. Yeah. Uh, I don't say it goes away forever. I think it, it's, the story is told and it's consumed responsibly, you know, cause it is a part of our culinary mm-hmm. repertoire as, yeah. as, as cooks and peoples, you know, it has deep meaning and nostalgic components for families that really survived with absolutely nothing, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah. we can't forget those intimate histories as well. Yeah. And it's, it's delicious. I mean, that's what, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. a lot of foods that aren't so good for us are taste really good. Yeah. They're, uh, it's deceptively delicious. And, um, it, it's, uh, it, like I said, it has a lot of, um, uh, cultural and personal and familial connections to different families all over Native America. And I think if we were able to contextualize this history, um, food choices might change. Mm-hmm. And so instead of being, uh, overly aggressive and forcing change on people about their diets. Uh, cause in kind of where in the work that I do, it, it wouldn't be, uh, appropriate to try to force change on anyone. Um, that would kind of be verging on shaming people for what they choose to eat because they don't know, they don't have the information, proper information. So allowing people to go on, um, to be guided to discover for themselves and make their own opinions and decisions, I think is, is a more appropriate course of action. I think when it comes to Mm -hmm. that or other indigenous foods. Yeah. Another somewhat related problem. Um, you have talked about, about this, that there's um, some areas in reservations, there's a food, uh, food desert problem, just a, you know, not a whole lot of stores and, uh, you might, you, the convenience store might be closest and, mm-hmm. a can, you know, a can of Pringles might be the yeah. <laughs> easiest thing to yeah, get to, definitely. you know? Yeah, uh, definitely. <coughs> excuse me. Um, the term food desert has kind of arrived uh, or uh, been used more and more over the past 10, 15, 20 years. And, and it does refer to uh, food access. And that's one of the major obstacles across Native America is food access and having fresh ingredients. Um, historically, many tribes were in the mu- in the most um, lush and fertile areas of the of America. So, San Francisco, California, um, the red the uh, redwoods, uh, Puget Sound, the Great Plains, the Rocky Mountains, Great Lakes, the the coast, the, all of the East Coast. Um, many of these territories and all those lush, rich environments did not require too much agriculture. Uh, we could forage and follow animals and hunt and gather and the, 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 the world, the, the landscapes could sustain us in that way. But as um, those, those benchmarks in American history, we talked about um, Lewis and Clark expedition, the uh, manifest destiny, all those pieces displaced us from those intimate relationships with land. And it was uh, um, publicly accept- socially acceptable um, enforced by the government, enforced by the military, and it was okay to run natives out of their ancestral homelands and put them in the places where foods just will not grow. And over time, we remain there and um, we're kind of imposed food systems, imposed ideas around food and food consumption. And so today that manifests in, in uh, food deserts. And not only some, some reservations are still in their very lush ancestral lands, but the spiritual, intellectual, emotional dis- detachment from landscape has produced the lack of access and ability to cook. So therefore, the foods might be right outside in the wild environment, but uh, the process of um, displacement or detachment, again, looking for that complex Western validation, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, trusting the food pyramid more than ancestral knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's it's uh, it's an example of kind of the fallout effects of some of those uh, displacement and relocation uh, programs. So um, really doing our best to keep Native foods insight in mind is is a solution-based course of action I, I feel like we're taking in, in our homeland. Um, and like my, the white mountain Apache tribe where I'm from, for example, is one of the most calorie rich landscapes in, in the Southwest, uh, yet it's still considered a food desert. Mm. 
And so that's kind of an example of how we could have this lush landscape, but still be making different food choices. Mm-hmm. So that, I feel like that's a, that's a good example of what we're talking about when it comes to food deserts. And the choices, and that's probably maybe based on tradition, based on culture. Yeah. You know, based on what we've been used to, right? Mm-hmm. So you're, yeah. tr- you're trying to change some of these paradigms. Uh, before we uh, go to break, and when we come back, I want to uh, talk about your what you're currently doing. Your sure. nutritional recovery uh, program coordinator, executive chef at the Rainbow Treatment Center, and Cafe Gaucho on the White Mountain Apache Tribe in in Arizona. So connecting this with with recovery and with nutrition and with with health. Um, but before we go to break. So we talked about, uh, you know, the fry bread and how mm-hmm. it's uh, delicious, but maybe not as healthy. Yeah. And we talked about the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash. Mm-hmm. And uh, so one thought I would have coming to this is I might need to be convinced that, uh, you know, corn, beans, and squash are delicious, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe we could give an example of a dish, <coughs> dish or two that you, you prepare, you know, to, because you, to, to get people to eat. Yeah. In a traditional way and a healthy way, yeah. uh, probably also needs to convince their taste buds, right? In- yeah, certainly. And and it has to be uh, relevant and tangible. Mm-hmm. Um, the dishes can't be like chef style, complex, and plated in a real refined French way, in my opinion. I mean, they can, and it's really cool to certain demographics. Um, it's creative for like young groups and people, but... Um, the approach that I've begun to take with uh, teaching uh, Three Sisters, um, the combination is just by doing it, uh, just dicing them up or doing it, is just doing it simple. And so like the, the dish that we did um, yesterday and today will have a roasted butternut squash. It'll have a dried, we call it dijinji corn, or in Navajo land they would call it steam corn, or down in Mexico they would call it chicos. Basically it's corn that's, been uh, grown and harvested, barbecued in the ground for a couple days, and then dried and then shucked. So it has this really deep, um, deep, sweet, rich, earthy aroma to it. And um, so the dish that we're doing is is a simple winter variation. And I brought some tepary beans from the southwest, and I brought some anasazi beans. Uh, so those are the three winter varieties of corn, beans, and squash. And when I when I teach, I say just cook in ratio: equal parts beans, equal part equal parts corn, equal parts squash, um, and make it colorful and seasoned to your liking. Because it could be a soup, a stew, it could mm-hmm. be roasted. Um, you could just have all three separate on the plate, and it would still be three sisters. You know, it doesn't have to be mm-hmm. mixed together. You know, um, so and. The way I I hope to encourage people is to think about all the different varieties and colors of corn. Think of all the different varieties of beans, all the different varieties and types of squash, and do the math. It's probably millions of combinations. Mm -hmm. By cooking techniques, seasonality, young vegetables, baby vegetables, hard squash, winter squash, you know. Yeah, I I think it's the possibilities are endless. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then you bring in um, indigenous foods from other places, right? Yeah, certainly. Yeah. I think um, there are a number of uh, uh, native food producers that, that grow and commercially package and sell their ingredients. And I feel like they are a critical piece of this um, foodway resurgence that we're living right now. Uh, because without farmers and harvesters and practitioners of that uh, traditional ecological knowledge, um, we don't have foods to cook with. Uh, without um, uh, culturally sensitive, hand-harvested wild rice from Minnesota, we don't have that actual story to tell. Um, without the practice of grow, uh, seed saving and growing corn in the real traditional um, traditional way, which is thousands of years old, we don't have the ability to tell those stories. We might we might only have access to genetically modified organisms or or foods, you know. So um, food producers are very, very important in this uh, process. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back more with uh, Nephi Craig, uh, he is uh, founder of the Native American Culinary Association and uh, currently is Nutritional Recovery Program Coordinator and Executive Chef at the Rainbow Treatment Center and Cafe Gaucho uh, at the White Mountain Apache Tribe in Arizona. More following this break. Everyone has a favorite author, actor, musician, or comedian. At All Things Considered, we don't just bring you the news of the day. We introduce you to the coolest people you thought you knew and learn what really makes them tick. What you hear might just surprise you. Join us every afternoon for All Things Considered from NPR News, conversations that connect. 
Join us for NPR's All Things Considered weekday afternoons at 3 here on Utah Public Radio. Next time on Philosophy Talk, the value of a college education. Well, those who go to college earn a lot more money than those who don't. Yeah, but isn't college about more than the size of your future paycheck? Oh, like what? Like finding a passion or satisfying one's thirst for knowledge. But what if your passion is poetry? Then study it. But what are you going to do with your fancy degree in poetry? Live a more poetic life. The value of a college education. Next time on Philosophy of Access Utah was first broadcast in March 2019. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is uh, Chef Nephi Craig. He's a, a Native American Culinary Association founder. Uh, so, uh, Chef Craig, uh, you currently um, are Nutritional Recovery Program Coordinator and Executive Chef at Rainbow Treatment Center and Cafe Gojo the White Mountain Apache Tribe in Arizona. So uh, tell me, this this is uh, Cafe Gojo. It's, a, I guess, r- r- cafe open to the public, at least is open sometimes, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, at the uh, Rainbow Treatment Center. Um, so first of all, this uh, you told me before we went on the air, this is uh, located in a former gas station. Mm-hmm. Uh, people in Logan are familiar, and you you told me you just went to this restaurant, <laughs> yeah. uh, an Eastern Indian restaurant, uh-huh. uh, ca- uh, uh, Tandoori Oven, yeah. uh, which is located charmingly yeah. in an old gas station with working pumps outside. Yeah. Is that how it is with Cafe Gojo? Yes, it is, and it, uh, um, it, 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 it's, it's very much like that. Um, the place you went to, you're speaking of, was excellent last night, by the way. Yeah, they do good. They do yeah. good food, yeah. I, I frequent there <laughs> oh, about once a month or something. Um, so, uh, uh, recovery center, you're, you're, you're cooking for people in recovery. Yes. And this is a, this is where I feel fortunate to have the ability and opportunity to take native foods into a, uh, the deeper realm of the indigenous personal self. Um, we're, we protect ourselves by different layers of, uh, personality traits or, uh, some different elements of our, our, our set of characteristics that make up our personality. And we rarely um, expose that intimate realm where, uh, where, where pain and suffering might exist. <clears throat> and so I feel like it's uh, when we are able to uh, confront the uh, issue of addiction and recovery, it's, uh, it's a very profound change for people. Um, I like to look at cooking as very tactile and experiential. Um, it's very emotional and it's very cultural and scientific. So I, I, I definitely uh, draw on my own experience of traveling and cooking and working. And I also draw on my own re- experience with recovery because um, this June will be my uh, eight years in, in sobriety. Oh, wonderful. And so I personally know and um, through lived experience the, the power of transformation that comes with um, recovering uh, from addiction or an and alcoholism, I feel this issue across uh, Native America is kind of dismissed, and just not just in Native America, but in general, is stigmatized and uh, brushed under the rug. But I feel mental health is one of the uh, critical factors and pieces of our recovery from the larger uh, reality of historical traumas and complex grief. Um, so, at in the nutritional recovery program, we've uh, designed it to uh, take people on a, a journey of guided discovery. 
Um, we will enact certain principles of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy, um, even notes of existential therapy, because uh, inside the foods there are uh, memories, and we say that foods are carriers of knowledge or carriers of wisdom. And so when we participate with foods, we, uh, when we, first of all, we create safety. And when we're able to participate uh, in the practice of, of cooking, we're, we're, we're opened up and you're kind of in a moment where you're um, time traveling. You're thinking of family, you're thinking of past experiences, and you're not too focused on the, the fears that paralyze us in active addiction. Um, <clears throat> so we hope that allowing individuals to participate and learn some of these food historical notes uh, and learn some hands-on skills, uh, that they will add that to their support system as White Mountain Apache community members and that they can um, apply that at home because we always say that cooking in a restaurant is okay, it's, it's fine and that's amazing, um, but it really starts at home. Uh, we really can't make a change just by cooking in a restaurant per se. Uh, we have the most um, uh, we have the most potential to impact our families and make different decisions along with this life change of recovery. And um, so I feel like if if all of the health disparities uh, from diabetes, obesity, heart disease, the mortality rates, the uh, suicide rates and violence and all of these things, they're just the physical manifestations of historical trauma and complex grief and interruptions of parenting patterns. It is a very deep and uh, um, uh, the root causes are evident. So I feel like in the treatment center setting and in a cafe, Gojo, we're able and fortunate to be able to mix those behavioral elements of, a, of team group work in a kitchen um, to activate ancestral knowledge. Um, an example of that being I, I'm not a fluent Apache language speaker, but I encounter other people that are on a regular basis. And they hold keys and wisdom that I don't have even as a professional. So in re all reality, I'm not a master chef at all. I'm still a student of the experience of recovery. And that's just one example of shared knowledge and how we heal together. Um, we feel like we're treating those symptoms uh, in, in an intimate way through food. And so the cafe will be um, part, uh, part full-time staff and then part uh, vocational training students who are in recovery as well. So it's, it's really neat. Mm. So this is the, definitely it is not only health, but it's culture. Mm -hmm. But that relates to, as you're saying, that's it's, uh, the culture can be healing. If you yeah, connect to the culture, definitely. And mm -hmm. and uh, some of the uh, feed feedback we've gotten is that wow, I didn't even know that tomatoes were an indigenous food. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know that there were no beans in Europe. I didn't even know that there was that Italian food is based on a native food, um, the tomato, right? Yeah. I didn't know that uh, there were no uh, chilies in India and Asia before 1500, you know. And so basically expanding food knowledge gives a sense of um, improves personal self-vision, basically. Um, validating ancestral knowledge and validating experience and hopefully allowing someone to come to encounter themselves in a new way for the first time and see their potential and really go for it mm -hmm. and recover that's interesting. Um, you know, people, I guess, in tomato country or mm -hmm. chili country, yeah. right, hadn't realized that, uh, you know, that that traveled from the New World all the way across and, and became an important part of mm -hmm. revitalizing Italian cuisine or Asian cuisine. Yeah, it, it really, rev uh, native foods, <clears throat> excuse me, native foods really revolutionized world gastronomy and uh, world cooking around the world today. Um, we, uh, I like to say that anywhere you are in the United, in the United States, you're on indigenous land and the foodways that evolved, uh, from Chicago to New York, to LA to Phoenix, they're all, uh, influenced by ancestral knowledge and indigenous landscapes. Um, so you could say that all of contemporary American cuisine, the foundational, uh, terroir of that is, is native American cuisine. 
Mm-hmm. So um, when we highlight and identify what native foods really are, we could go to the grocery store, for example, and about 70% of all products in the store will be indigenous foods. Mm-hmm. So it's a matter of education, mm-hmm. a matter of connecting to the connecting that back to the culture. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And um, providing that guided discovery uh, because just cooking alone won't save someone's life. It won't keep them sober when it comes to addiction. It's an intimate layer that uh, enables one to fill the fill the void. Um, like for my own recovery process and um, being deep into it going on eight years, it's uh, I realize that um, the even though I was functional and able to achieve certain things in my path, I still had this void that I was dying to fill, and I was trying to fill that with colonial mindsets. Mm-hmm. I was embodying colonialism in very various different ways. I was embodying a value system that wasn't necessarily indigenous to to me, and that became damaging. Mm-hmm. I was uh, I could possibly you could say that I was buying into the the image of the violent Apache that was created in the 1800s, not by us, but it was sensationalized in movies. Um, so um, embodying certain elements of toxic masculinity, um, mm-hmm. the patriarchy as we're, we're matrilineal societies. And so ultimately all those complex um, uh, things that I was uh, trying to embody and pursue um, ultimately manifested and turned into aggression, anger, fear, and ultimately became uh, an addiction, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And so I feel like detaching from that was, was critical, and the foodways was an anchor point for, for me as a professional cook. We'll, we'll leave the conversation there. We're at the end of our time. Uh, Nephi Craig is an executive chef and a founder of the Native American Culinary Association. Nephi Craig, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. So yes. Much. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state, musical performances, festivals, live theater, art shows, dance, educational or guest lectures, workshops, volunteer opportunities, and everything else. Go online to our user-friendly submission page at upr.org Click on the community calendar link and review the submission guidelines. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock, on Utah Public Radio. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll hear from some famous fathers and their musical offspring, Bob and Damien Marley, Zhao and Bebel Gilberto, and more. There could never be a father loved his daughter more than I love you. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for All in the Family, a Father's Day special on the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.